0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Uh, Good morning, everybody, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we bring guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and, and from across the nation to join us here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. Please email KYMN Radio if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, and I'll find experts who can address your topic. So let's jump right in. A few weeks ago, we had Captain Brad Goboy and Mr. David Bruins on our show. Both men were former U.S. Navy submarine officers, and we had a fantastic discussion about submarines. Comments we received indicated our audience enjoyed the discussion. Well, we get to have another discussion linked to U.S. submarines today, but on a slightly different topic. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Commander Rick Campbell. He is now a famous author of military thriller novels, and he has penned such great novels as The Trident Deception, Empire Rising, Ice Station Nautilus, Blackmail, Treason, and his latest novel, Deep Strike, which released this month. We'll explore Rick's career in submarines, his transition to becoming an author, and we'll hear about his writing processes as he turns his knowledge of submarines into the kind of thrillers reminiscent of Tom Clancy's best. Rick Campbell, welcome to National Security This Week
1: hi john Uh, thanks for having me
0: so where are you uh where are you at today this morning
1: uh today i'm in maryland
0: okay and i I heard you're uh you're transitioning over moving to penn state is that right
1: uh yes our new job uh day job at penn state uh university uh working on a uh one of the newest the newest uh, torpedo uh programs uh, being developed for the navy
0: that is great maybe we'll get into that if we have a little more time towards the end of our discussion uh, so let's get started with our discussion today. And, and uh, I know from your bio page on your author website that you actually lived in Duluth, Minnesota, for a time when you were a kid. Uh, what what memories do you have of Duluth?
1: Well, I was only uh, I lived there for a year. I was only seven years old, and uh, I, I remember I saw a lot of snow. <laughs> um, I remember ten feet tall uh, snowbanks, and I remember our our, our pets uh, they had some cats. The first time they saw snow. Uh, I remember her jumping off the porch, and um, all you saw was the top of her tail, as she wiggled her way through the snow, and eventually emerged someplace, someplace else. But uh, yeah, I just—I remember a lot of, a lot of snow.
0: So, uh, so let's get into your career. Uh, you graduated from Annapolis, uh, were commissioned in 1985. Uh, you chose a nuclear submarine program out, out of uh, out of Annapolis. Uh, what drew you to submarines, and what was the selection process like when you opted for the submarine service?
1: Well, I started to join the Navy and attend the Naval Academy before I realized I'm really susceptible to seasickness. So once I got there and we started doing our you know third class cruises, I realized uh, this might not be the best uh, career choice. So surface fleet was out as far as I was concerned, and um, <clears throat> so I Rosie uh, decided to go to Marine Corps. Uh, and that was my plan up until my um, my junior year, until they started looking at asking for interviews for the submarine service and. I realized after being on uh, uh, a mini cruise on a submarine that once you submerge, it's pretty calm. Yeah. You know, there really is no sea sickness to worry about. So anyway, I gave that a try um, and the money was a lot better than the uh, Marine Corps. And I thought that, hey, if I get out five years, I've got an extra extra um, expertise to handle from the nuclear power aspect of the of the uh, submarine. So I went and gave that a try um, and then uh, I passed the interview. So. The way it works at Academy is most service selections is done on a service selection night where um, they have so many slots from Marine Corps, so many flying slots, uh, and so on and so forth, and, and those, those slots are picked by class rank. The number one guy gets whatever he wants, and then the last guy gets whatever is left over. But for submarines, you have to do through an interview process ahead of time uh, and pass the interviews uh, and apparently I made it in just barely The typical interview process, take some exams and then you uh, have two interviews and then you talk to the admiral. Uh, a lot of questions I get was, Hey, did you interview with Admiral Rickover? And the answer is no, I just missed him. I interviewed with his successor Admiral McKee. And apparently my interviews didn't go too well because he asked me, Hey, how'd you do on your interviews? And I go, well, I didn't think I did too well. So they actually pulled me back for a third interview, which is uh, unusual. Uh, but apparently I did real well on that one. And so they, they accepted me.
0: So your bio page also indicates that you spent uh, a good portion of your career uh, aboard the Fleet Ballistic Missile Submarines, and for our audience, uh, that's that's the submarines that carry the, uh, interco- the uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles uh, as a nuclear deterrent. Uh, but you were also involved in the commer- conversion process for the USS Kamehameha to become a, a special operations platform. Can you tell us a little bit about Kamehameha? What was she designed to do? And what can you tell us about the operations you did with the US Navy SEALs? And, and, and by the way, Rick, as long as it's unclassified, obviously, this is a great opportunity to tell a sea story or two.
1: Okay. Well, Command well, Mayor was a ballistic missile submarine when I got uh, detailed to her. I was the um, engineering officer in charge of the engineering division. Um, so, but two months after I got there, she went into uh, the shipyards in California for conversion to special warfare. And so, basically, the thing that meant was. Um, converting all the the missile tubes to different aspects to support uh, two dry deck shelters that attach to the missile compartment deck and then in each shelter you would typically carry one of the seal mini subs that you've kind of may- maybe uh, maybe aware of or but we also put other stuff into it uh, we also depending on the mission we could put in uh, two uh, ribs rigid hull inflatable boats that the seals would pull out and then they would inflate catch a motor from that they would pull from the superstructure of the submarine, and then they would go off. So they had, So the equipment we carried inside the dry deck shelters was tailored to the mission they went on. And I did two uh, Westpac deployments with uh, SEALs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know exactly what they did when they went off, um, <laughs> but uh, we were responsible for, you know, establishing conditions. You would uh, essentially get close to the coast, you'd uh, get, uh, you know, periscope depth, you know, make sure there was no one around. Um, and then you would either uh, launch the mini subs or their, or their ribs. And then the sills go off through the thing. And then they would come back, come back to a predetermined monitor point. And then you would, um, uh, they would either drive the mini subs into the uh, shelters underwater, or, uh, they would, uh, bring their ribs up alongside. And typically if they were bringing ribs, you, they would tie, um, a tow line between two ribs. And then you would actually drive the submarine in between and you snag the tow line between the two ribs. And then you would drag them far enough out to sea where you need to worry about anyone, um, you know, observing them, and then you could uh, mm. uh, pull their, their stuff down, or you could even submer- do a partial surface um, and then bring their stuff into the shelter and then submerge again. So it depends on, on the operation and where, where you were.
0: And you used the term uh, Westpac, that means Western Pacific uh, Deployment, uh, yes. just for, yeah. our, for our audience uh, to know. And, and for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is noted author Rick Campbell, who pens military thriller novels focused on submarines. Uh, so, Rick, you, you reached the end of your career in the U.S. Navy. I remember when I, when I hit that time frame, I wasn't, you know, quote-unquote lost per se, uh, but I certainly wasn't certain what I wanted to do next. Uh, you're a famous author now. How would you make that transition from submarine officer in the U.S. Navy to noted author of military thrillers with the publishing house St. Martin's Press?
1: Well, actually, I guess I got my first two book deal while I was still active duty last year on on um, in the Navy. So way I started out is um, I was a, a, a avid science fiction fantasy reader as a kid. And I had the story um, rolling on my head for about 20 years. And um, I could never really bring myself to write the story because I didn't consider myself to be a writer. I didn't think I had the talent. You know, I was a science and math kid in, in school. And um I was convinced, particularly from my ninth grade English class, that I did not have the talent <laughs> to write anything, much less, you know, a three page essay of what you did that summer, which struck fear into my heart, much less <laughs> writing a, a novel. I always thought that the that writers were the the more of the literary arts type, you know, the kinds of the kind of guys that hung around in the common area playing guitars and a tie-dye t-shirts and long hair <laughs> and whatever. Those were the the, the the writer types, you know, and I was the, the science engineering type. So I, I really had a hard time bringing myself to make the commitment to write a full length novel. But I, I, I finally decided I'd do it for a um, my I left the navy, and, and, and that's the only reason it got done. It was sort of a, a one a bucket list kind of a kind of a, a endeavor. So um, I wrote the science fiction novel, and then um, uh, I queried for literary agents. And uh, bottom line is, I got no. I got no hits. It's like no one was interested in the story I had written. So but the interesting thing was, is that while writing the book, um, I really enjoyed it. I discovered that that's something I really, really like doing. And so I decided to give it one more try. And there's an adage in writing that says either write what you love or write what you know. So I had written what I loved, and no one else loved it. So I said, <laughs> "All right, um, I'll write what I know." And I, I know the summaries, right? So I wrote the book that became the Trident Deception, and um, that got um, <clears throat> that, that got me a, a two book deal. First thing they asked for, I got I got an agent, and then uh, Saint Martin's Press was interested in. And the first question they asked was, are you writing a sequel?" And my answer was, uh, "Of course." <laughs> 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 it wasn't really wasn't part of my plan, but. Um, I said, "Yeah," and then I got the two-book deal offer about five days later. And then when the Trident inception came out, it did so well that a couple weeks later they offered me another two-book deal. So there I was. I was um, under contract for three more books at the time, and I sit, figured that's like, well, I, I guess I'm a writer now. I didn't plan really <laughs> it that way, um, but it just kind of worked out that way.
0: So it's like walking into a minefield.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. You know, because I knew really, I knew, I knew nothing about. I call it the literary world. Um, You know, one of the things that kind of struck me is the the slow pace at which the traditional authors, um, traditional publishers move at. I mean, I always thought military acquisition was slow, and then I met the literary world. It's like, good (laughs) Lord, they want a finished, smooth manuscript one year before it actually releases in the bookstores, because there's that much stuff they do typically in series from the editorial process, and then you got the copywriting process, and then you got um the, uh, the production process you got interior design you got art you've got marketing publicity sales all that stuff um all those all done in sequence um so yeah anything inside a year typically i mean about seven months is as hard as you push it and and anyone and they want about 12 months at a time so a lot i've learned a lot about the, the writing the writing world and the process in in, in, in the meantime last couple of years that i'm obviously happy to share with anyone who wants to uh is thinking about
0: writing something so that first book of yours trident deception uh i, I actually have here in the studio uh, a screen capture from uh the tv sitcom mom with uh Alice and janney uh holding your book trident deception up in the middle of the shot uh <laughs> as part of the scene for the tv show how did that happen any any uh any background on that
1: yeah, that's a good question. I got uh, a lot of people sent me, uh, you, know, you know, screen captures of that thing, and it was a surprise. Uh, I asked my publicist, and she said, "No, I didn't arrange it." So it's like, so it just had to be, had to be chance. I imagine that the director of the series said, "Hey, let's have you know, mom read a book. You know, what do you guys got lying around?" And, and uh, so someone apparently had my book lying around the studio, uh, and they, um, and uh, they, uh, mom. Held it up for a few seconds, whatever to, for, for the episode. So that was very interesting. And people, who obviously, who read my books, they they spotted it right away, and they were pretty excited about it.
0: Too. That's free advertising. I uh, can't yeah, get you any can't better be, than that. Yeah. Uh, so for our audience members who have read or soon will be reading your books, how much realism do you bring to your stories? You know, I mean, how technically accurate are they compared to real life aboard a U.S. Navy submarine?
1: Well, they're as accurate as, as I can make it. I mean, the two cornerstones I wanted to incorporate into my novels was to make it as real life as possible, you know, something that you could be, you know, reading and then look up and then see happening on the news, right? So it has to be, the scenario has to be, um, uh, has to be um, probable, right? Now, you um, so that's a fine line because for example, my second book is a war um against uh China, naval war against China, an all-out war. And so there's there's variations. There's plausible and then there's probable. So my books fall into the realm of plausible. It is something that could happen. Um, but I, I would I would say that it's not probable. In fact, I don't I don't think it's probable that we will go to into a all-out naval war with China, but it's certainly something that our Defense Department of Defense and our Navy is certainly you know, gear, you know, geared up the handle. And so it falls in the plausible range. And one of the things I've learned with readers is that there's no one size fits all. There's, you know, readers have lots of different interests and in, in desires and and most readers are, are happy with the uh, plausible, but every once in a while you get a group of readers, you go, no, 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 that's not probable. That's probably won't happen. It's like, well, yeah, you're right. It's, we probably won't go to over China, but it's certainly within the realm of plausibility. So on that aspect, my, my, my plots, they have to be plausible, something that could actually happen. And the second aspect is that I use characters that are real-life characters, right? Uh, I don't use uh, the larger-than-life characters like Jack Reacher. Uh, you know, he's a, a character who can, you know, kill five people with his pinky, right? Those are the larger-than-life <laughs> characters that you see also in, like, the Marvel and, you know, comic, those, those type of, of movies. And some readers like that. Some readers like you know those larger than life characters that they can live vicariously through, and then there's other ones um, who prefer the more realistic someone, the, the type of character person you can actually meet in everyday life. So I try to keep my stories grounded in real um, scenarios that could happen and real characters that you could actually meet, right?
0: Yep. Uh, so, so on that, can you tell us a little bit about your? personal writing process uh, you know how do you come up with your stories and and maybe how long does it take you to to write that first draft of a manuscript
1: uh that's a good question when it comes to writers writers generally tend to break into two camps there's the plotters right they're like me who lay out everything ahead of time and then there's the second group is what we call them pansters <laughs> because they write by the seat of their pants right in <laughs> other words they have a general idea of, of, of what the book's about, and they kind of know how it's going to end. Uh, but the, nothing really is is still done. They start writing, and, and the characters sort of take over, and the, the story just sort of develops um, as they write. Um, I, I can't even imagine writing the type of books I write um, as a pantser. For me, I don't even begin the writing until every chapter is outlined. I know exactly where it's going to happen, um, uh, who's, uh, who's there. I know the main events, um, I, something, and, and I even know the what day of the plot, what what time of day, because I jump between time zones. i got to know if it's a day or night. All that stuff laid out ahead of time. So the hard part for me is the outlining part, because all that has to be developed and laid out before I start the writing. And, and the, the, the hard part about the outlining is, is that you can't force it. And so that's, that's the kernel. That's where the idea of the story comes from. And, and, and for me, I've gone a whole year, for example, knowing that I want to do a book on this particular topic. And it's taken me a year before I finally figure out how to put it all together. And, I, and, and like I said, you can't force it. And for me, I typically become creative after a book release. For me, uh, I, I, there's a lot of pressure for when a new book comes out. I want it. I'm, I'm hoping that it's a good book, that people like it, you know, and, and it does well. And so typically after my book releases and all that stuff kind of happens, then I feel kind of a sense of relief, so to speak. And then the floodgates sort of open. Like there's some times where I go a whole year, I got nothing. And then and then it downloads so fast that I can't even write it down fast enough. I can outline an entire book in five days, <laughs> whereas I spent a whole year and I couldn't figure out anything. So that's the outlining process. Um, and then before, again, before I start, I've got every chapter outlined. And once that's done, when the writing starts, it's about six hundred to a thousand hours to write the novel, and, and the difference between six hundred and a thousand is really the amount of research, right? Because I write realistic today plots, there's just so many details that I have to get right from the weapon specs, you know, weapon capabilities, platform specs, capabilities, um, how to actually do things, you know. On a, I know how it's done on a submarine, I don't know how things were done on a carrier mm. or how how fighter pilots or bomber pilots. And I have to interview all those people right i can't just make that stuff up right because people who have been there done that will just they'll right. just you know raise the bs flag and and, and uh and, and post review saying i don't even know what i'm talking about so i've got to get all those itty bitty details correct and that can take a lot of time you know tracking down the experts um interviewing them and then and then fleshing out the series the the scene uh, and then you got to go back with them let, them let them read through the whole thing make sure i got everything correct So, so now it's taken me about 600 hours because the first couple of books, you know, I had to go, you know, find those experts. I had to go interview them. And, and and that took a lot of time. For example, my second book, after I did all the interviews and then I wrote the scenes, I still had over 500 lookups and that was after all the initial research. Right. So that that gives an idea of how many things you got to get right that you don't really realize until you start writing the scenes Uh, Then you realize, like, I don't know the specific answer to this, and i got to go find that answer.
0: Yeah, it slows you down, that process, the research process. Absolutely. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy commander and noted author Rick Campbell, who pens military thriller novels focused on submarines. Uh, so let's talk about your your latest novel, Rick. Uh, Deep Strike. What is the premise of the story for Deep Strike?
1: Okay, as you mentioned, um, <clears throat> my contracts are for submarine thrillers. they are twenty eight page contracts, single lines, single space. But when it comes to the topic of the book, it's 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 submarine thriller, and I have to use the same character set uh, for the whole series. That, those are really only stipulations. But so I brought it out. To um, other, you know, navy military thrillers, and also into other aspects like Tom Clancy did as well in terms of the ground warfare. But I've also got—I I always have to have a submarine sort of theme plotline as part of it. So for Deep Strike, the the, the main plot is um, essentially I kind of shift back to the Middle Eastern sort of theme, terrorist theme, where you know ISIS and and, and has has uh, since been demolished for the most part. Um, and then in the meantime, since U.S. has been focused on ISIS, Al Qaeda has started to do a partial recovery, um, but they, they're not at the formal strength. And they're, and they're searching for that sort of that, that signature strike, sort of like that 9-11 that brought Al Qaeda to the front. So that's what they're searching for. And they um, uh, so they have an idea and they they're able to connect with sort of a, um, a disgraced uh, former Navy SEAL. Some people accuse me of pulling that from the headlines from about a year or two ago <laughs> where they had this Navy SEAL on trial right. um, for – I can't remember what it was. Uh, it was prison-related. But I had come up with this plot um, a couple of years ago. But basically it was a SEAL who in the heat of a moment was killing killing prisoners, and uh, eventually um, he, he got turned in and, and, and sentenced and sent to jail. He got out, and so he feels betrayed by his country. He dedicated his his, his life. He put his life on the line for the United States. And uh, his reward was being sent to prison. So he has sort of a, a vendetta against the United States and against the people who who turned him in. And he ends up connecting with with um, with um, uh, Al Qaeda elements. And the plan that, that is put together is to um, convince a uh, Russian captain of a new Rush, of the, one of the newest Russian submarines to launch a strike against the United States. Right. And unbeknownst to the Russian captain, um, the some of the warheads have been replaced with nuclear warheads. Oops. And it's all part of the plot. <laughs> and he's also convinced to do this because his, his, his daughter is sick with cancer. There's an experimental drug um, that he can't afford. Uh, government won't pay for it. And so uh, this uh, the, the antagonist, he, he uh, ends up making an arrangement for payment. So he ends up paying for his daughter's treatment that saves her life. But in return, he, he has to, the, the Russian captain has to launch the missiles. So that's kind of the main summary plot is that sort of plot is, sort of gets discovered, and then it's a bit of a race against time to try to find the Russian submarine, uh, track it down, and then and try to sink it before it gets to within launch range. Yep. So that's the main main submarine element of plot. There's other other elements to it. There's a lot of a, there's an espionage element to all my books as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to figure and unravel all of that stuff, uh, but ultimately the the main plot is the, the submarine part.
0: Well, that sounds exciting. I, I'm sure our our listening audience will be snapping that book up uh, very soon. Uh, so this uh, this book, Deep Strike, uh, you you'd mentioned earlier, same sort of a s- same group of characters. So, do you have like a specific main character that you concentrate on, or is there a group of uh, kind of protagonists that you follow?
1: Yeah, that's a good question I get a lot of, and, it, and the answer is it's a montage approach, and, and the the reason is, as I mentioned earlier, is that I didn't plan on writing a series. Uh, I was right, I was going to write a book and then and then be done with it, and so when they, my publisher wanted me to do a series with the same characters, I realized that my character set was ill-designed to support uh, a military thriller series. Mm -hmm. It worked well for the first book. And and the reason I say that is I don't have, uh, in most military thrillers, your main character is uh, your former special warfare, special operations kind of guy, right? Mm Or, you know, pretty much the guy who kind of as I say, kick ass, take names, so to speak, sure. and do a lot of things because of his specialized training. Um, unfortunately, the four main characters—my montage is four main characters—and um, you know, one of them is a submarine captain. Uh, and the problem is, again, my books are real life, unlike some you know far-fetched submarine novels. the, the, the captain of a submarine is not going to go ashore with this guy it's on a mission. <laughs> okay, the submarine captain is staying on board, yeah. so my that character is tied to a submarine platform. So when I try to tilt, tilt, write scenes outside of the submarine, which a lot of them are, you know, I can't use that character. Mm-hmm. Um, another character is an Navy SEAL on board the submarine, kind of like Kamehameha. It's one of the Ohio-class SSCNs. And so this character, he's an Navy SEAL. He can only go on missions that are launched from that submarine. The fourth quarter main character is the president. And then the, the third third character is the president. So the fourth, fourth character is really... She's a White House staffer, she's a national security advisor. And I realized that she is the only character that I can move around. Mm. She can she she can show up at the and uh, at the Kremlin, she can show up, you know, at the you know, Israeli embassy, she can do she can she can go anywhere I, I almost anywhere I want her to go. And I realized that uh, with her essentially being the character through which I have to tell most of the story, um, the, the, all the connecting parts that I needed to um, I needed to get her into trouble, right? If, if, <laughs> if that character, if all she did was go to meetings, take notes, greet the president, you know, it wouldn't be long before the readers were just thumbing through every page she showed up on. <laughs> so basically, I gave her some characteristics that uh, get her into trouble. She's uh, a little bit impulsive and very vindictive, um, and she gets into situations that a lot of people would walk away from. So that adds another element of sort of excitement to the books in, in terms of the predicament she gets into, um, and, um, and, and and the people she gets involved with them. And that's, that's sort of like sort of the espionage type of the of the theme um where you've got those 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 scenes ashore that tie the big picture together. So anyway, I, I use a montage approach. It's four characters um, and in fact the, the the female, the one who moves around, it, it turns out for whatever reason that 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 is the favorite character by far of the series, which I found a bit surprising. Um, and the second second most favorite character is the submarine captain. Mm. Um, so anyway, however I, I, I constructed it, it seems to work. People like the books, and they, I like the characters, so yeah. I, I, it, it turned out okay.
0: Uh, so b- back to a quick submarine question for you. The, the U.S. Navy is now working on the Columbia-class uh, fleet ballistic missile submarines to replace the Ohio-class boats uh, that you served on during your career. Uh, are we going to start seeing Columbia-class submarines in, the, in your future novels? Uh, and if so, when do you plan to introduce them into your storylines?
1: Well, as I mentioned, um, I write well what what I consider to be very plausible scenarios using I use real real submarines, real surface ships, um, etc., which um, uh, what well, can't cause a problem because I, I sink quite a few in my first couple of novels, uh, which I, I'm sure is very disconcerting to people, uh, the crews on board those submarines and ships. Um, so the first issue is I have to sort of keep straight in, in, in uh, my mind, I have the, the real world Navy, and then I've sort of got the Trident Deception Navy, which is missing a few, mm-hmm. um, uh, but Columbia won't show up for 10 years because Columbia is not in the fleet, right? So Columbia can't show up in any of my novels until actually at least, uh, enters, uh, sea trials at the earliest and probably not till later. And because of the books I write, I doubt a Columbia series, uh, ship will show up because, if you've ever been attached to a ballistic missile submarine, um, we call them boomers. You know, uh, we we call a patrol a boomer patrol five knots to nowhere because <laughs> it is. I mean, it is very boring. And, and if you're attached to a ballistic missile submarine, you want your patrol to be very boring, right? Yeah. You don't want any excitement, right? So, you know, people ask me about you know being a fiction writer, and it's like, look, my first book, I turned a boomer patrol into a thriller that tells you I write fiction. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, no, Columbia, I can't imagine it showing up again. Uh, but lots of fast attacks and SSGNs. And uh, um, in my next book, uh, book number seven, you'll see some uh, Jimmy Carter will show up in that book as well. Because, that's, right. again, that's real life. I could use that ship. Yep. And uh, hopefully I don't sink her along the way because uh, maybe it would be hard-pressed to replace her. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's true. Uh, so here's the critical question, Rick. Uh, has Hollywood approached you yet to turn your novels into blockbuster films?
1: Yeah, I got a lot of interest in the first book, The Trident Deception. In fact, I was working with Mace Newfield, who produced The Hunt for October. He really liked The Trident Deception. But there were some issues with the book that were a little too difficult to overcome. The first issue is that, you know, Mace explained it to me. He says, because of the type of novels I write um, with so many different scenes and a lot of military hardware as well, it would take over $100 million to turn any of my books into into, uh, a movie. Um, and so the, the premier, um, I guess, requirement is that I got to have Department of Defense and Department of Navy support because you want to be able to go aboard those ships and film sure. as opposed to having to build all those sets, yeah. right? And it's just really cost prohibitive. And the tri inception had two sort of major flaws from a Hollywood perspective. First one is that um, it, it involved, you know, um, being able to, um, crack the code, so to speak, and send a nuclear strike order to a U.S. official submarine, right? Uh, and be able to get around all those nuclear safeguards, and, and that was not going to play well with the Navy. They want to have a, a, a have a movie about, you know, uh, the in this case Israel uh, cracking the code. And the second part of the issue was Israel itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't realize at the time that you know Israel is still a very sensitive topic, both in the literary world and in Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, and just having Israel involved. They're not the bad guys in, in the book, um, but they're sort of the guys who they get stuck between a rock and a hard spot. Sure. And, and their solution, um, um, essentially, they, they put into a place where Iran is developing nuclear weapons. It's in a hardened facility. The only way to destroy it is with uh, another nuclear weapon. And they refuse to use one of their own. They come to the United States. They ask for help. You know, uh, America refuses for various reasons. And so it's sort of a bit of a payback, which is great. You didn't help us in our time of need. You're, we're, we're going to have you take out that facility for you. So they end up t- sending a strike order to a U.S. submarine. So that, because of that construct and the dynamics there, it, it was something that, that Mace you felt, felt was sort of a bridge too far. Um, so, and then and then there was uh, interest in my third novel. And then right about then we had the, the third, there were three submarine movies in a row that tanked at the box office. You had um, The Phantom with Ed Harris uh, about 10 years ago, maybe 5, 10 years ago. It made like 10 million. And then he had The Kursk. Mm-hmm. Uh, hit me by 10 15 and then and then hunter killer came out last year or you know 18 months ago and it did uh very poor at 15 million at the box office it was pulled by two weeks from almost every theater so right now there isn't much of an appetite for a summary novel, summary movie mm-hmm. i think it's gonna be quite a while but hopefully if uh, if uh if the appetite returns um certainly got a lot of books to choose from and uh, we'll get that interest we'll, we'll kind of get re
0: well, if anyone in our in our listening audience knows a producer or a director in Hollywood, now uh, now you can tell that person about Rick Campbell's books. Uh, so we have just a few minutes left today, Rick. Uh, where can our readers find both Deep Strike and your previous five novels?
1: Well, you can go um, anywhere you anywhere books are sold. So whether you do it online, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, a lot of a lot of independent sites, and, and uh, Barnes and Noble in particular. You know, if you'd like to go to a physical store. Typically my books are at the front of the store when they get released. Um, um or if any independent bookstore, if they don't have it on the shelf, you can order it from from them. So pretty much anywhere you buy your books, you can find my books. Um, or if you want to check out, check them out, just Google Rick Campbell, author, and I'll come up multiple, multiple places. Um, or go to Amazon or wherever you buy a book, type in my name, Rick Campbell, and then you'll find me. And then you can check it out and see if there's something that interests you.
0: And your author website is, in fact, uh, rickcampbellauthor.com. Is that right? That works. All, All right. right. That'll get you there. <laughs> well, we've come to the end of our uh, show for today, Rick. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on National Security this week. Uh, as you probably gathered, this show is about national security. Uh, we had an opportunity to talk not only uh, a little detail on national security, but also about your uh, your writing career after you uh, retired from the Navy. Uh, so appreciate your time today.
1: Well, Thank you, John. Uh, appreciate you having me.
0: Uh, so, everyone, that closes our, this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. I'll find experts who can join us to address your topic. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.